Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the European Student Think Tank podcast. My name is Victoria. And this is Florentin. Today, we are joined by Federica to discuss narratives around climate amplified migration. Welcome. Would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Um, hello, thanks for having me here today. My name is Federica. I'm an Italian student of political science and an ambassador to France for the European Student Think Tank. I've only started a few months ago, but I've beyond enjoyed my time here so far. So to get started, let's take a look at the link between climate change and migration and why is there a controversy around it? Um, so to understand this, try to imagine climate change as a phenomenon and observe the first two or three pictures that come to your mind. Um, chances are they are a sea full of dead fish, animals wrapped in the most various plastic objects, um, a forest burning, snowstorms or other extreme weather hazards. These are all very valid, but it's important to start talking about the consequences that climate change is already having on humans. Um, in the past decade, at an academic level, many have realized that climate change is, for example, tightly intertwined with migration. And in 2014, this link was officially recognized by the IPCC, which is the United Nations Scientific Body for Climate-Related Research. There are many other studies that have been published in the last 10 to 20 years that show that there is a connection, for example, um, between rain shortages and internal movement from rural to urban areas in sub-Saharan Africa. And the general logic behind this link is actually quite easy. Be it um, extreme and unexpected or more slowly onset, a dramatic environmental change might force people to leave the place where they live. And of course, if the country or area in question has scarce resources or in, is politically unstable, it will be more difficult for this wave of migration to be absorbed, which might be a catalyst for conflict as well. And now this view, um, of course, needs to be nuanced. Uh, sadly, sometimes people in academia or simply those who take part in this kind of debate have a very black and white opinion. Um, this creates controversy around topics such as the link between climate change and migration. Um, because if I say climate change always causes migration, you can easily disagree and you would be right. Climate change doesn't always create migratory waves and migration is not only caused by climate change. There are many other variables and so many different possibilities. So we need to use nuance when we talk about this to avoid dangerous generalizations or imprecisions. Right, and what would be rather the main features that would link these two phenomena instead? We can also imagine that the observation is not straightforward and that there must be some other factors at play here. What would a broader and more general picture of this issue include to be complete? Um, in very low-income countries, for example, people don't necessarily have the financial resources to migrate, especially after an environmental hazard may have destroyed their properties. So, of course, it is important to stress that the nexus between climate change and migration is not linear. There are many other variables that we need to consider. Um, for example, socioeconomic and political circumstances play a huge role in determining whether a natural hazard will have a radical effect on displacement. The financial means of the household and of the community, the social network and the perception of risk, and also the institutions are all important factors of this equation. We can sum them up in the word vulnerability, which basically means the environmental, the social and the economic exposure to risk. This will in fact determine whether one will be forced or will decide to migrate, um, where to and also for how long, more than the environmental event in itself alone. 
Um, at this point, I want to stress two things. First of all, that migration is in many cases a strategy of adaptation to climate change. And so even though mitigation is beyond important and working towards fixing the root causes is really central, we also need to be realistic about the current circumstances and embrace rather than fear migration. Um, clearly though, adaptation and mitigation need to work synergically and taking into account the complexity of the situation. Um, secondly, and this is what I would like to focus on, there is an issue of narrative around climate change and migration that leads to counter-effective discourse and also policies. Right, that's interesting to hear. Could you tell us what that narrative is and why its effect is so detrimental. Um, when it comes to climate discourse, we've seen a great transformation throughout the years. Um, you can try this yourself as an experiment. If you go on YouTube or any browser really and type in climate migration, the results you'll find are likely published or sponsored by security agencies or geopolitical strategy companies. Climate change is becoming not an environmental or an economic issue, but a security one. So what is the problem with the security framing? Because after all, if an issue becomes so politicized, it may lead to stronger responses like climate mitigation. Well, sadly, this isn't the case. Um, and the main reason why this discourse is problematic is that the dominant view is in fact not that of a security threat to the migrants themselves or a matter of ecological security, uh, but rather a question of danger for the national security of mainly the global north. There are different security discourses, of course, and the IPCC discourse, for example, revolves around human security and stresses the importance of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. But sadly, as I've already said, the narrative that dominates the scientific and political debates is that of national security. Of course, that of Western countries, Western states. And even though the security threat narrative is not new, and it has also transformed over time, the policy response has been quite homogenous ever since the beginning. In a word, it's defence. For example, enhancing the military. So defence is today much more important than climate mitigation and even adaptation. I've read a recent study by the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute that basically shows how European countries spend way more in military defence than in humanitarian aid. So for Germany, it's um, 46.9 billion against 21.1 for humanitarian aid. For France, it's 46.8 versus 10.7. And for Italy, 25.7 versus 2.25 billion. So the numbers really speak for themselves. This is not specific to the climate security issue, but it shows how defense and militarization are becoming increasingly central in political agendas. Moreover, it reveals how the security narrative is fairly centered around the victims, um, it actually focuses more on the ones we could argue are indeed guilty of the dramatic situation that the planet is experiencing at the moment. So let's remain on the militarization issue, which you just mentioned. How is that playing out in the present scenario and how is it reflecting on policy reactions? An example of growing militarization is the increasing number of what are described as security partnerships. An example I'm thinking about is the African or the United States African Command, which was created in 2008 with the baseline intention of protecting US access to oil, promoting the war on terror, countering Chinese influence and pursuing a policy of stability within re the region, also in terms of climate security. Um, this reactionary policy framework also fosters a, a justification for Western intervention and the so-called green colonialism. By green colonialism, we mean the practice of richer countries uh, or parts of countries, usually in the global north, uh, to justify intervention through alleged green development programs. 
In theory, of course, it's not wrong for countries to cooperate to face a green transition together, but in practice, this is not a collaboration that takes into consideration the supported country's economy, geography, tradition and politics, uh, but rather imposes practices and systems that might be incompatible with such aspects that I've just mentioned. This often benefits the intervening more than the receiving country, as it can disrupt local systems of development and sustainability, uh, that can of course be economic, environmental, political, and etc. Uh, for example, an aspect of green colonialism that we sometimes don't consider is related to the question of indigenous people's rights. Even if renewables are of utmost importance for the green transition, their use must be considered in the context of justice as well. One example I'm thinking about is the use of Sami lands in Norway to install wind turbines that disrupt the natural environment and the migration of reindeers that are at the foundation of the Sami economy and lifestyle. And this also must have an effect on policies targeting refugees and migrants overall. So how does that look like? This is really a nice segue back to the topic of migration, as the defense framework often does translate into strict migration policies. In the kind of migration, the climate question is often used to classify refugees and to frame their condition as less worthy of attention, of action or understanding from recipient countries. When we talk about climate refugees without paying due attention to the nuance and the context, we are risking a depoliticization of the term refugee. In fact, it might actually shift the responsibility away from local, but most importantly international institutions and also power dynamics, and onto natural causes, resulting in a sort of environmental determinism, we could say. It sometimes ends up in counterproductive policies in recipient countries uh, that basically fragment the term refugee, uh, whose lines and rules have now become more blurred and hence more easily evaded, uh, which also hierarchize the bureaucracy, politicize ethnicity, and make it really hard for certain groups and nationalities to be accepted as refugees. This is caused by the fact that they are seen as climate and hence naturally displaced refugees and thus less worthy of an emergency reception. Moreover, if we narrow down the status of refugees to climate refugees, we might have the opposite effect of what we're seeking to solve, because it can become an exclusive category. Um, as I explained at the beginning, it is difficult to isolate environmental factors, and consequently, people might have a hard time proving that the reason for them migrating or seeking protection is environmental destruction. So what we can conclude um, is that it is probably more effective to use all the instruments that we already have, the legal pathways um, and both hard and soft humanitarian, political and economic instruments at the institutional level. Um, and also as individuals, we can pay attention in the media and in political debates at how the security narratives influence our perception and the policies in our countries. Yes, but restrictive actions to an ever-changing issue like this very rarely seem to work and create the desired result. Are these policies effective in achieving the goal that we assume states have in mind, to contain climate change migration? How would that work in the long run? Um, it depends on what you mean by effective, I guess, because migration has decreased for some countries like Italy and Spain due to domestic policies and also a stronger Frontex in Europe. However, it doesn't look like this trend is going to continue also due to the COVID-19 pandemic. In general, we can say that very rarely closed border policies are long-term solutions for migration since they're not addressing the root causes of the phenomenon, but rather mm, sticking a band-aid, so to say, on the problem. Defense, the military, military intervention and strict migration policies also have really zero influence on climate adaptation and mitigation. So in that sense, they are all but effective. 
Public opinion is, in my view, extremely polarized. Uh, in my home country, Italy, for example, you have full populist political programs being built on people's fear and racism, xenophobia. But at the same time, it's uh, important to notice that we also have strong civil society movements fighting for climate justice and for open borders. So how can we concretely change the narrative about climate migration and what other changes are needed to reshape both theoretical discourses and practice, like policies and interventions? Now, this is probably the core of this topic, and it's, of course, very tricky. How do we reshape the security threat narrative? I think the key here is gradualism. There is no point in talking about adaptation or mitigation if institutions still are fostering a xenophobic attitude that leads people to fear migrants. So we need more media, more articles, more videos, more podcasts just like this, more initiatives that push for a narrative that is, first of all, anti-racist and anti-xenophobic, one that addresses historical injustices and that is based on human rights approach. Um, there is a very interesting paper by 350, which is an international movement that is working to build a world of community-led renewable energy for all. And they basically explain in this paper how to communicate about the climate crisis without falling into these narratives. In a few words, what they stress is the need for urgent action. And here we see the focus on mitigation as well as adaptation. The attention that needs to be devoted to human rights violations in the context of climate change and the fight also against climate change, as well as the blame that we need to attribute to corporate actors for increasing public expenditure on straight migration policies. This, of course, is not to say that the media has the whole responsibility in this context, but I do think that it is a very good place to start as it influences public discourse and public discourse affects policies. I think it's going to be hard to change certain institutional attitudes if the political discourse is so centered around security, fear and closure. Um, so it will be very difficult to reach proactive policies. However, I want to end on a very positive note. Um, that of migration and that of climate change are both incredibly hard challenges to tackle. They need a multilateral and cooperative uh, solutions that, um, and, and they really need to change the system which we are used radically. The good news, however, is that working towards solutions to the inhumane treatment of migrants and refugees can indeed complement and even enhance climate action and vice versa. What I mean to say is that these are two problems that share common causes and some common solutions, even though of course they are and they must be dealt with separately as well. So I don't know about you, but this is for me a huge incentive to start reading, writing, talking and taking action more and more about climate justice, refugees' rights and human rights. Federica, thanks a lot for joining us today and providing your invaluable insight. Um, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here. This is all for today's episode. If you want to see more of our content, check out the EST website. Yes, thank you for listening. To let us know about something you would like to hear on this podcast, drop us an email at podcast at See you next week.